Hey, deserving listeners, you deserving, deserving listeners out there. I thought I would read some of your deserving emails today. But before we do that, we deserve a introduction to this deserving podcast, which is called Psychology in Seattle. I am your deserving host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. This first email is from deserving patron Dorothy. Dorothy writes, Hey, Kirk, I'm in the field of neuroscience, so this question may be poorly constructed, but do you know of literature concerning different treatment outcomes based on the cost of therapy? Would paying would paying for therapy uh, would would paying more possibly result in better outcomes compared with free or cheaper service, or are there too many confounds such as the nature of high paying clients? At my university, they they charge only ten dollars per session, and there tends to be a general consensus that these services are substandard. But I wonder if people would feel differently if they were paying a hundred dollars per session instead. I know of two people who have told me that despite the cost, paying for a private therapist was the best decision they ever made, and the difference was drastic. It just seems highly unlikely to me that all the psychotherapists working at our university are terrible at their job. Interestingly, though, for 2018, they plan on laying off these seven psychotherapists and will replace them with three clinical psychologists because apparently there is a demand for cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, interesting email. Uh, yeah, this is a very common belief in my field. I have heard it all. That I've heard it, you know, for twenty plus years. And whenever this topic comes up in a group setting, some therapist will always mention this. You know, there'll be some kind of thing like um, a sliding fee scale, and someone will say, like, well, you know, if people don't pay for therapy, they don't appreciate it, and outcomes are worse. You know, that's a, that's a well-known fact. And um, I've never questioned it. I've always been skeptical of it because it, 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 it reeks of classism to me. But, um, but yeah, I've never looked into the research. So this gave me a chance to do so. So I looked into the research and uh, I found a bunch of studies, but, some, but not a lot of great studies. Um, most of the research actually was in the 80s and 90s that I found. For example, uh, 1984, there's a study, 76 undergraduates. So that's a very specific kind of people, right? Just, you know, because as I've talked about before in other episodes, psychological research almost always involves undergraduates, people who are going to that university. So you have clinical psychologists or other researchers, social psychologists at the university, and the easiest way to get subjects for their studies is to provide extra credit to students taking Psych 101 or, or some undergraduate psych class. Um, I actually did that. When I was my, a freshman at UW, I volunteered for psychological research because you got like an extra like 0.3 or 0.5 to your grade or something. It like actually helped you to get your, your grade actually automatically went up. Whatever grade you got at the end of the quarter, it just bumped it up like 0.3 points. And that, that can be a big deal, you know? So, so a lot of the, so a lot of these studies are only really looking at a very specific kind of person, you know, what's the sort of person in 1984 who even went to a four-year university? I mean, we're, we're talking about privileged, likely all white people, um, younger, you know, educated, this kind of thing. So 
that just needs to be taken into consideration. But not anyway, 1984, 76 undergraduates. They there was an experimental group that paid for therapy, and there was a there was a control group that did not pay. And subjects they found that subjects who had not paid a fee reported reported reliably lower levels of symptom and problem distress. So in other words, when there was a lower fee, there were better outcomes. And what they were thinking was, when you have a higher when you have a fee, you have higher expectations and therefore worse outcomes or something. So this is actually counter to the commonly held belief that a lower fee equals bad outcomes. Actually, in this case, a lower fee had better outcomes. Another study from 1984, I don't know if this was the year for this kind of stuff, but anyway, subjects were randomly assigned to one of four experimental conditions representing fee structures. So you, they, were, they were randomly put into four different groups. There was the first group, which was no fee. The second group, which was a modest fee of $5. The third group was a modest fee, but knowing others paid more for the same service. So they, you know, sort of these are the sliding fee scale people. And then a higher fee of $25. I looked up inflation, and that's about $60 in, in real $28, $2018. So they had four different groups, people from no fee to $60 in today, today's dollars. And again, probably undergraduates here. And what they found was the fee did not affect the subject's evaluation of counseling. So they just asked the the subjects their their value of of the therapy. Did it help? How helpful was it? And fee had nothing to do with it. I found an interesting dissertation from 2001. And uh, in this, uh, the abstract, I'm just going to read the abstract. It reads, it is held by theorists and practitioners of psychotherapy that client fees promote therapeutic effectiveness. This notion, this notion appears, this notion appeals to the common sense, but has not been widely researched. So to just put a fine point on what this person is saying is they're saying that, um, you know, therapists and practitioners and theorists have, have this, there's this general understanding that you have to charge a fee in order for people to appreciate the therapy and therefore have better outcomes. And, um, but this has not been researched very well. And so going on with the abstract, this POCOC Post hoc study compared differences between fee paying and non fee paying clients in a community counseling center. These two groups of clients were compared among the criterion variables of premature termination, therapeutic effectiveness, number of sessions attended, and the number of sessions missed. So they're saying so this so this dissertation the study is set up to measure. So one variable is how much is the client paying? And then they're comparing that to different kinds of variables like premature termination, how effective the therapy was, the number of sessions attended, that kind of thing. Going on with the abstract here. Therapeutic therapeutic effectiveness was measured by comparing pre-treatment and post-treatment GAF ratings. Um, Or uh, it's, it's, it's basically a rating of your overall functioning. Um, higher ratings, you know, uh, is from zero to 100. So the higher ratings mean that you're functioning pretty well, and lower ratings means that you're highly symptomatic and not functioning very well in the world. Additionally, client race and gender were included as predictor variables alone and in interaction with client client fee. Using logistic regression analysis, a significant relationship was found between client fee and premature termination. 
Clients who paid a fee were found to be twice as likely to terminate therapy after one session compared to those who did not pay a fee. No significant effects were found for the other criterion variables of therapeutic effectiveness and client attendance. Client race and gender were not found to be significant alone or in interaction with client fee. The results of this study suggest that client fees are not therapeutic and may function as a barrier to client engagement in therapy. So in other words, this study really tried to evaluate this common cultural understanding in our field that you need to have a high fee in order for therapy to be effective. And what this person found was that it's actually the opposite as this as the previous 1984 study that I pointed to, is that uh, uh, higher fees are not associated with higher effectiveness. And actually, higher fees are associated with client dropout, which makes sense, right? It's like, oh, boy, this is costing too much. And therefore, higher fees are bad for outcomes because a lot of people will terminate prematurely and actually not get the benefits of therapy. So now I didn't look at all the different studies, but you know, I looked at enough to demonstrate to me that my intuition has been correct, that you, you know, the commonly held understanding that uh, you need to charge a client. You know, I've heard people say that for Medicaid people, they don't, they don't pay anything. So you have medical coupon people in Washington state, they don't pay a dime for therapy at agencies. And I've heard people say, well, you have to, you have to charge them something. Otherwise they don't appreciate it. Otherwise, you know, and we all know that, you know, you need to charge something in order for outcomes to be better. And I've heard people say, you know, just, just charge them like $2 or $5 or something. You just got to charge them something because, because, you know, you got to make them appreciate it. And the data and the findings from this research uh, do not support that. So you ask a patron, I forget your name, (laughs) Dorothy, um, would paying more possibly result in better outcomes compared to free or cheaper service? Again, um, the research demonstrates that is not true, and again, not in my experience. And it, 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 this notion that is commonly understood in our profession, it just reeks of a self-serving attitude. How convenient it, what is it that therapists are like, you know, the more we charge, you know, I'm charging you a bunch of money because it's better for you. It's better for you clients that I charge you money because it's, you know, it's better for you. If, 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 I, if, if you aren't paying for this, you're not going to appreciate it and outcomes are going to be worse. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for your sake. I know it hurts you, but it's, it's believe me, it, it hurts me more as, you know, it hurts me a little too, but it, believe me, this is going to benefit you. Uh, that's ridiculous. And so, um, isn't it interesting and convenient that we've been having this cultural understanding? Um, also, it reeks of classism. You know, uh, poor people don't appreciate me, and you know these poor people like they 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 you know they just take and take and take. You know, it's just it's really gross. So um, uh, icky, icky, icky. Okay, so other kinds of uh, things you're saying here. You say I know of two people who have told me that despite the cost. Paying for a private therapist was the best decision they ever made, and the difference was drastic. Um, this isn't so surprising because clinics are high stress environments. The you can you can have supervisors and upper management that can be extremely controlling. Uh, they, the uh, clinic pay is often pretty low. You can have a high caseload. I I started my career working at an agency. And also, although there were pros and cons to that, 
Uh, I mean, the pro of, of working at an agency is you have healthcare. And this is you know between agency work and private practice. An agency work, you have healthcare, you have sick leave, you have vacation time. You only have to work from nine to five, and then you just go home. You don't have to worry about anything. They take care of the venue. They pay for rent. They deal with supervision and paperwork systems and record systems and you know all that stuff. It they sched they do your schedule for you. You just show up for work and you do your job and then you go home. So, but on the con is you get paid a lot less than private practice. You don't have autonomy, and if there's drama, you got to deal with it. And if you have a shitty boss or a city or a shitty director, you got to deal with that too. And so, I'm wondering if your university clinic has those kinds of things, which causes the therapist to be overly stressed and provide a, a shitty service. The other thing is, is that therapists are hired by, you know, someone who is in charge of hiring or a group of people in charge of hiring. And it's possible that your university clinic is hiring a bunch of shitty therapists. I mean, you know, it's totally possible there too. So it's not really surprising that you've heard anecdotally anyway, that your university clinic is kind of worthless, but that doesn't have to do with fee. You know, it has to do with other things in all likelihood. Um, so there's that. Some people say that agency therapists aren't as good. You'll hear people say that. They'll be like, um, you know, if you want a good therapist, you got to go to a private practice person. You know, don't go to a, someone at a community agency, you know, because community agency therapists are terrible. And I'm here to tell you anecdotally and research, you know, backs me up on this because it's a hard thing to study anyway, because they, they generally work with different populations. But anyway, in my experience, that's just not true. You, you can have shitty therapists in both venues. You can have shitty therapists at a agency. You can have a shitty therapist in private practice. I mean, the more emails I get from you listeners about how shitty your therapists are, and, and all of them are in private practice, by the way. I, I very rarely get an email from a listener who is seeing a therapist at an agency. And yeah, but yeah there are some terrible uh, therapists working in private practice. I mean, just awful, abusive therapists working in, in private practice. So, you know, you're, you're rolling the dice either way. And there's some I know I know because I have worked um, very closely with community agencies in the Seattle area because I have a lot of interns in these in these places. I work very closely with uh, these agencies and know that they have excellent therapists who have worked there for decades. Some people just love working in agencies, you know, for the reasons that I laid out. So, so it's it's you know um, I think what you're experiencing at your university is just. Um, kind of particular to your situation. Um, other universities, I'm guessing, have fantastic therapists who work at their, uh, you know, their clinic. I mean, incidentally, Antioch, where I teach, we have a clinic too. And um, I know of some therapists that are working there that are fantastic. I don't, I don't observe every therapist that goes in and out of there. But, but anyway, and those are all students, by the way. Um, you go on to say, interestingly, though, for 2018, they plan on laying off these seven psychotherapists and will replace them with three clinical psychologists because apparently there is a demand for cognitive behavioral therapy. In response to this, I will say I don't understand the statement because psychotherapists and clinical psychologists both vary in their approaches and both have groups of clinicians within them that use CBT. So, you know, by, by the, your statement, it's almost like you're saying clinical psychologists use CBT and psychotherapists do not. But that is, that is, not, that is not the case. I, I would imagine that you have very similar um, 
rates of psychologists. And by, and by psychotherapist, I'm guessing what you mean is like non-clinical psychologist psychotherapist, um, which is a wide variety of, of professions. But anyway, um, you know, to, to be clear to everyone, because I, I, I see this stuff happening, um, psychologists, clinical psychologists, meaning people who are licensed psychologists, are no better as therapists than master's level uh, clinicians. And this is coming from someone who has a doctorate. I have a doctorate. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that doctorate level therapists are no better than master's level therapists. And they, you know, and they've done research on this. It, it, the, the variables are too, there's too many other variables. Um, because your approach, your experience, the supervision you've had, the sort of school you went to, how smart you are, how empathic you are, uh, how misdirected you are, the kind of clients you work with. There's too many other variables. And, you know, being doctoral level and master's level doesn't really matter. You know, it, it, it would, it's tempting to say, well, geez, you know, you have a doctorate, which is like a lot, it's like double the education of a master's. Surely you're better at therapy. No, <laughs> it's just not. I mean, believe me, I, I've seen that as, as someone who has worked very closely with psychologists and very closely with master's level people, I'm here to tell you there's, there's no difference. I mean, one of the things that is um, uh, obvious to me as to why this is true is because psychologists and doctoral level, because you also have doctoral level counselors, doctoral level marriage and family therapists, doctoral level, um, you know, social workers and so on. And so there's, there's, and I'm here to tell you that there's, there's no difference. I, 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 for example, felt that I was extremely effective as a therapist, and for most of my career, I was master's level. I didn't get my doctorate until later on, and I'm here to tell you that my doctorate didn't make me a better therapist <laughs> because, um, well, for a lot of reasons. But um, a you know a, a clinical psychologist it doesn't get any better education regarding counseling. What they do do is they get a lot they. You know, Matt, so, so a clinical psychologist can do assessments where master's level people generally cannot. So a clinical psych psychologist can do a full clinical assessment, you know, a 10-page report, diagnosis, um, you know, psychological testing, IQ testing, learning disability, ADHD, you know, assessments, uh, Rorschach test. You know, they're trained and I was trained as a psychologist and learned all those kinds of things. And master's level people barely know anything about that. At the very best, they can sort of administer a low-level BDI or anxiety index, or maybe even maybe even a post-traumatic stress disorder uh, uh, inventory. But um, so there's a big difference. So so there so the difference between master's level people and clinical psychologists is that um, another difference is that uh, doctoral level people, whether you're a clinical psychologist or a doctoral level marriage and family therapist, is that. Uh, doctoral level people, by definition, do a dissertation which involves research. So they have to take a lot of classes on research, statistics, qualitative research, research design. They run their own research study with a dissertation. Usually that's what a dissertation involves, whereas master's level people barely ever do that. Some, some master's level people do do that, but vast majority do not. Or if they do, it's sort of minimal. And so, so doctoral level people absolutely know things that master's level people do not know. But the one thing that doc, doctoral level programs don't try to do, because for whatever reason it's just not on their agenda, is to improve clinical skill. That's not their focus, actually. So um, 
it's assume, it's assumed that at the master's level, your clinical ability is good enough that, and you don't really need to, extra education. Now, there are some doctoral level programs that absolutely try to help you with that, so it's not universal. But but anyway, so uh, so I just want to lay all that to rest. All right, let's go on with another email here. Okay, this next email is from Patron Honey. Honey writes. Hello, I am a I am in school to become a counselor. Uh, good for you, patron, honey. Uh, the patron goes on to describe uh, some situations about um, being with a therapist that she fell in love with. She says, "I fell in love with my therapist. We flirted in session, but nothing physical happened. I can't tell you. I I, I couldn't tell if he liked me back or or if he was just humoring me. Humoring me. He said a few things that led me to believe it was mutual." But when I gave him a gift, I was referred out. He never opened the gift. He left it for me to pick up. It was a Game of Thrones coloring book. He liked the show a lot and referred to it often. But after I gave him the gift, he terminated with me and referred me to someone else. I feel like I've been tortured because he won't speak to me or respond to my emails. Why did he refer me out? I'm going crazy and I've been out of therapy with him for one year. His ethics, he told me that his ethics said that he can never have a relationship with a former client, but he won't even give me a session to talk about it. I've been talking about this for a year with a new therapist, but it's still on my mind every, every day. Do you have any advice? So she, she goes on with the email and she says that um, in this one session, kind of like halfway through uh, their time together, they talked about her attraction uh, to him. Because pretty pretty quickly she said she developed a romantic attraction to him. She goes on with the email. We put limits on things like no more emailing between sessions. We agreed that I wouldn't ask him any more questions about his personal life, which I didn't. And we agreed that we'd only say something with a sexual innuendo if it was really funny, like too funny that you have to say it, like once a month. We didn't quite stick to this. He at, one time he asked me if I wanted a piece of gum, and when he tossed it across the room, it landed right in my cleavage. We were both laughing. He seemed defeated like he couldn't win because it was completely accidental that that, that, that happened. He read me his ethics and explained how he could never defend a decision to date me in court, and his colleagues would think badly of him, but I found a million loopholes and said he was being ridiculous, and I would... Never take it there. We joked about looking for a Bahamas loophole, but it wasn't serious. When he asked, I said yes, and I when he asked if I was still attracted to him, I said yes, I still have feelings for you and think we'd be a great couple outside of here. He told me just don't tell me you're in love with me. I never did even though I was in love with him because I was trying to respect that boundary. He was an incredible person and so funny. I really fell for him the moment he was doing an imitation of his dog after getting spayed. He was making an imitation of his dog all, dr- all drugged up and pissed off at him for giving him the, and giving him the cold shoulder. When I gave him the gift, I thought he might be slightly uncomfortable with that, but I didn't think it would be a deal breaker or, any, or anything like that. It was a lot bigger deal to him than I realized. I thought he'd take it, say I shouldn't have or something, and then we move on with our session. He, when I gave him the gift, he didn't even open it, and he said it was equivalent to me showing up for a session naked and sitting in his lap. 
And yes, my current therapist was horrified that she, when she heard that he said that, but honestly, we had that kind of joking relationship. He said he was thinking he would have to refer me out. I couldn't tolerate this perceived rejection because I was in therapy to deal with intense feelings of rejection. It was a tough year for me. Then this happened. I knew when I left the session he was going to consult and was thinking about referring me out. I found it officially that he had referred me to someone else when I called the office and they said all my upcoming appointments had been canceled. I wanted to talk to him about the clinic. I wanted to talk to him, but the clinic would only have the director call me back. I emailed him and he said it was not a rejection of me personally, but in the best interest of my treatment. He then stated he was not comfortable engaging anymore and he hasn't communicated with me since. I begged for a final session in person, but was referred to other people in his practice by a termination letter. My current therapist says he handled this so badly, but what else could he have done? If he couldn't date me, fine. Then why couldn't we at least continue therapy? Uh, oh my God. When I read emails like this, I am, I'm just disgusted with my profession sometimes. I mean, what is wrong with these people? What's wrong with this guy? I mean, come on. Uh, now, I, this is all your description, patron. So, you know, who knows what I would glean if I were to actually talk with him or the agency or whatever. But I feel like I, I can sort of read between the lines with stories like this. And unless you're completely just lying out of your ass, uh, you know, I, I, I think I have enough information to be able to roll my eyes so hard that they're falling out of my head. I mean, just to go back to, to and so this, so to, to state from the beginning, none of this is your fault. You are a good client. You had feelings for him, which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You, you have issues of rejection. You have issues with relational traumas, I'm guessing. And there, there's nothing wrong with falling in love with your therapist. There's nothing wrong with you flirting. There's nothing wrong with you doing anything. You can do whatever you want, It's but it's a therapist's job to be a professional and to be helpful. And, uh, you know, so, so none of this is a bad reflection on you. You were actually using therapy well, and I'm glad you're talking with your new therapist about this. But um, uh, let's take a break, actually, because I got a lot to say about this. All right, we're back from the break. I always tell people at, at the beginning of the thing right after the break is if you haven't yet become a patron, do so now. Go to patreon.com. You might actually have to go to your computer, your laptop, your desktop or something and actually like, you know, because you have to get an account going and all that kind of stuff. And so um, if you can do that for us, that would be great. Go to patreon.com, become a patron. And that is the way you can really support this podcast in a very real way. So, so reading your email here, it says, we flirted in session, but nothing physical happened. Um, and then you say, I can't tell if he liked me back or if, or if he was just humoring me, humoring me. Okay. So you, but you're, you're talking about flirting in session. And so when I read that at first, I was like, well, were you flirting and he was being professional and you were just sort of reading, you know, reading into things too much. But then I actually started reading other things in your email and you're saying, we put limits on things like no more emailing between sessions. So as I've talked about in other episodes around this stuff, it's like there's a reason why we have professional standards. There's a reason why we have uh, protocols about this. And if you're doing a ton of communicating between session, uh, that's that's a red flag of something that uh, of a boundary crossing. You know, um, there when whenever I have a client who is emailing me a lot between session, I 
the next session I talk with them about it. And I'm like, so we have a couple options. You can either schedule more sessions per week or you can have another therapist if you feel like you need more support and this kind of thing. Or we could do two-hour sessions maybe or something. But but this emailing in between sessions is um, uh, it makes it difficult because there there's going to be some weeks when I can't actually respond to you at all. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm available in that sort of on-call way. Um, so there's nothing wrong with a client wanting more contact, and there's nothing wrong with you providing more contact. It just has, it just needs to be within a very rigid frame because otherwise clients get confused. But anyway, um, not confused like they're stupid, but you know when you have relational traumas and you meet someone who is a stable attachment and you literally fall in love with that person and that person is really inconsistent with how they pay attention to you, it, it can lead to a lot of other traumas because you feel like, why is this person not responding to me the way that they did last week? Did I do something wrong? And as a therapist, you should freaking know better. Okay, so another thing here that you say is, we, we agreed that I wouldn't ask him any more questions about his personal life. So I, you didn't say this explicitly, but what I'm assuming is that he actually answered these questions about his personal life. Um, because there's nothing, and, and here's the thing, there's nothing wrong with you asking questions. I mean, there's just something wrong with him self-disclosing too much. So I don't understand why, now maybe he framed it differently, but if the, but if the decision between the two of you was, he was like, look, I need you to stop asking me questions about my personal life. Like the, the, the better therapeutic response is, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to answer questions about my personal life. You know, you can ask me, but I'm, you know, you're free to do whatever you want in therapy, but I'm, but, but I'm not going to answer those questions. So, so, you know, that's just one comment. Um, and then you say that you didn't, and then, and then you said that we agreed that we'd only say something with sexual innuendo if it was really funny, like too funny that you have to say it like once a month. So again, client patron who is writing into me told you you are totally in the fine here you can do whatever you want uh, it makes total sense that you know whatever you know that's that's your decision that you know you're free to be whatever you want to be in therapy for a therapist to say and i don't i'm not there and if the therapist were here he might defend himself but if the therapist said um, we have to end our sexual innu- innuendo talk. So right there that says there was previous sexual innuendo talk. And then the other thing is like, um, we'll limit it to once a month or we'll limit it to only things if it's really funny. You know, it's like, what? Um, and then you say, we didn't quite stick to, stick to this. For example, he threw a piece of gum in it, at me and it landed in my cleavage and we were both laughing and uh, blah, blah, blah. So it's hard for me to know exactly what's happening there, but... Um, uh, you know, anyway, you say in another part of your email, you say, we joked about looking for a Bahamas loophole about his ethics, but it wasn't very serious. So just the fact that he's even talking and quote unquote joking about, uh, you know, running away to the Bahamas with you is disturbing to me, actually. Uh, then you go on. He told me, ju- he told me, just don't tell me you're in love with me. So again, hard to know if he were here to defend himself exactly what he said, but by your description, all these things are kind of in line with a general unprofessionalism. And so he was saying, and plus you're not, you're not writing me accusing him of being unprofessional. You're actually in a sense trying to defend him in in some ways in your email, but uh, which is also fine. But anyway, um, he said, 
he, he from your description he's like just don't tell me you're in love with me and it's like what uh therapy should allow clients to express whatever they want to express and it which includes being in love with you people and if and that's okay there's and it happens there's nothing wrong and it's and in some ways it's a mundane typical response of you know not mundane in a negative way but like expected uh, response from someone with relational traumas uh, to a therapist who is um you know being a secure attachment for them so you know why are you, why is a therapist forcing a client to like refrain from expressing something especially something as therapeutic as that then you go on to say in your email he said it was a so when you gave him the gift, which is a which was a Game of Thrones coloring book. I just want to say, just a Game of Thrones coloring book. He said it was equivalent of me showing up for a session naked and sitting in his lap. Showing, you know, someone. I'm just trying to imagine what would go through a stupid man's head before he said that. You give him a gift, and he's like, "Oh my god." This is like you showing up naked and sitting in my lap. Like, one, are you that stupid that you don't know how to react when a client gives you a gift? This happens, and it's talked about explicitly in ethics classes. Two, I, you know, if you're that stupid, fine, you're, and you're just like, oh, I don't know what to do with this gift. What do I do? I've never encountered this before because I've never been taught this idea of gift giving in therapy. I am a complete idiot. Fine, you're an idiot. But why do you have to make this analogy that involves your client getting naked and sitting in your lap? How does it go there? You know, where's the leap there? And this is, and again, based on your description, if this is true, this is, I'm guessing, the tip of the iceberg of an overall problem with this person. I mean, this is a problem to, to have said something so obviously. I mean, let's imagine you weren't attracted to him. Let's, let's imagine that, you know, you just decided to give him a gift and he said this, how violating that would feel. It's so overtly sexual and so sexualized. I mean, he's acting out. There's something wrong there. Um, uh, other th- Other things you say here. That so so you know give him the gift and he's like oh boy um, I'm you know I have to consult about what's happening right now which I have just say is like how dumb are you that you that you know anyway so he's like oh I have to consult about this and I might have to terminate and then uh, the patron the emailer said that she left the session because early because she was like so kind of worried that he was going to terminate right then and there but he hadn't terminated he just said well we need to talk about this. And then you write in your email, I found out officially he had terminated when I called the office to try to make an appointment, and they said all my upcoming appointments had been canceled. Canceled. No termination session, no conversation about termination, just sudden and abrupt and untherapeutic termination. This is unethical. This is licensing board uh, sort of stuff. (laughs) This is civil court kind of termination. I mean, what? What? How does this happen? Um, and you write, I wanted to talk to him, but the clinic would only have the director call me back. So this means that at least the director knew about the situation at that point and was either forcing or authorizing this extremely abrupt, untherapeutic, unethical termination with you. I mean, what's wrong with a couple sessions to terminate? What's wrong with that? My get, the other possibility is the director detected that there's something wrong with this person. 
uh, I would doubt it because I'm guessing that this therapist wouldn't tell what was actually happening. So God knows, but, but anyway, um, I'm glad that your current therapist is reacting the way that, that I'm reacting. You write, my current therapist says he handled this so badly, but what else could he have done? What else could he have done? Makes sense. You don't know because you're not a therapist. Uh, you're, you're training to become a therapist, but, um, there are so many other things you could have done <laughs> and let me go over it. Um, so from your description, he seems to have exhibited incompetence in a number of areas, uh, professionalism in general, uh, countertransference, the awareness and management of his own countertransference. He clearly has no awareness or very little awareness and very little ability to manage his countertransference. He doesn't understand boundaries. He doesn't understand ethics. He doesn't understand, clearly doesn't understand how to properly terminate. And this clinic clearly doesn't understand how to properly terminate. I mean, there are, ex- there are explicit guidelines in the literature regarding termination. Most ethical codes, if not all, have a specific code regarding termination. It's not just like a suggestion. It's like a specific code. In fact, let me read the Marriage of Family Therapy Code on Termination. Okay, standard 1.11, non-abandonment. Marriage and family therapists do not abandon or neglect clients in treatment without making reasonable arrangements for the continuation of treatment. Now, I don't know if this person is a marriage or family therapist, but I'm just just to demonstrate that all all professional codes have some talk about that. And I would definitely call this not reasonable arrangement for continuation of treatment. This was like abrupt uh, a termination and um, not reasonable. What would have been reasonable was at least one session of termination and explanation and apologizing and all kinds of stuff. Because um, the therapist, the, the therapist owes you an, a deep apology for what he did. You know, it, it's fine if he can't deal with it. Maybe there were conversations behind the scenes with his therapist, with the supervisor. I don't know. You know, I, I doubt it, honestly. But, you know, maybe it was the best decision to terminate. You know, that's fine. But he owes you a deep apology for not being able to keep it in his figurative pants. So he he has um, a problem with countertransference, problem with boundaries, problem with ethics, proper termination. He has a problem with an understanding of how to deal with attraction and therapy. I mean, the way he dealt with it, with you being attracted to him was the way like a, a child or a teenager would deal with it, not a therapist. He didn't have an understanding of clients with relational trauma. I don't think. I mean – I've had many clients with relational trauma and for them to be romantically interested in you is, is, you know, it happens. It's okay. It's, it's in the literature. It's been known since Freudian times. It is not new. This is, you know, it's, it's not a fucking meteor that comes out of the sky and hits you over the head. This is something in the literature. It's not, it's not a rocket science to be like, Oh, you know, she's having feelings for me and you know, she's been relationally, you know, she's had some troubled relationships in the past and, yeah, she's, you know, she really appreciates my attachment and my stable relationship, you know, and she's having some feelings for me and that, that's fine. It'll, it'll all work itself out. Nothing will happen. I won't respond to it. She can talk about whatever she wants to and that's okay. Um, I will refrain from talking about her being naked and stepping and sitting in my lap. Um, it's, it's fine. <laughs> um, the other thing is, is he clearly lacked an understanding of how to deal with gifts. Just give it back. You Fucker, it's not hard. Just, you know, it's not hard to be like, oh my God, you gave me a gift. Um, I don't know how to, you know, <laughs> I mean, just so stupid. It's like that 
even though it's kind of a um, simplistic way of looking at it, if you don't know what to do with a gift, just give it back. That's simple. Don't just say, you know, just say, I'm sorry, but my ethics dictate I can't take this gift. I'm really sorry. I have to give this back to you. That's not hard. And if your client's super insulted and super upset, you know, you, you talk about it. But you're just like, I'm sorry. It's just not, I just, ethically, I can't take your gift. Now, it's actually much more nuanced than that. There are times when you actually do want to take the gift, not because it's a good gift, but because it's actually harmful to the client if you don't. But the point is, is like, just give the gift back. Not hard. It's not, it's not, it doesn't take a genius to be like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't take this. But instead, what he did is he accepted, he actually accepted the gift. He didn't give it back to you. He, he took it. And he said, you giving me this gift is like showing up here naked and sitting on my lap. What? How, what? And then, so he didn't give the gift back to you. Uh, you didn't find out he didn't accept it until later when you found out that he left the gift at the front desk unopened and they wanted to give it back to you. I mean, I just don't understand. Again, it's not, this isn't, you know, lightning striking twice. This isn't some random event. Clients giving gifts to to their therapist, you know, it happens. And, you know, you just, it's it's par for the course. No big deal. Just give the fucking gift back. It's not hard. Just let it go. But, be, you know, and that's what's so weird about the story, which patron you're picking up on, which is like, you know, we'd had lots of up and ups and downs, but we had established boundaries. You know, I'd argue the boundaries weren't firm enough. But anyway, you know, you'd, you'd establish the boundaries. And then this one day, and, and everything seemed to be going okay. And then this one day you gave him a gift and then and then he terminated without any termination session. He just canceled all your appointments. It's just so weird. It's like, what? Anyway, um, so uh, yeah. Um, now, the bottom line here, patron, is I am terribly sorry that this happened to you. I, I apologize on behalf of my profession that this, is, that this has happened to you. I get emails about this all the time. It's just like, uh, I I get much worse emails than this. I get, you know, it's just that the, and honestly, there's, there's a lot of men. I don't know if I'm just getting those emails or something. And I'm just thinking, dudes, like figure your shit out. Like you're a professional. Um, you know, this is why we have professional boundaries. This is why they talk about that. This is why we seek consultation when we have countertransference. You know, this relationship, this this therapy with him was probably doomed from the start given because it sounds like you were kind of flirting with each other from the very beginning. So it was and, – and given his level of sophistication regarding his understanding of therapy, it was, it was probably either going to end this way because of his lack of understanding and this, and this agency's lack of understanding or it would have been worse, which you know God knows what that would have been like. Because I'm trying to imagine a scenario, given how you've presented him, where he could have pulled himself out of this because he was so consistently off course. You know, therapists like this make me so angry. We're clinicians. We are not buddies. We are healers. We are not friends. We have a responsibility, a very important responsibility, and we need to recognize that. You know, he could have sought supervision earlier. He could have refrained from – you're asking me like what else could he have done? Well, he could have refrained from flirting back at you. He could have, he could have refrained from talking about Bahama loopholes. Um, he could have improved his personal life, I'm guessing, or at least tried to do that in his own therapy, which I'm guessing is not going well because oftentimes guys like this, 
their personal life is is shit, and they're they're they they might even be uh, substance abusing, um, this kind of stuff. Um, you know, uh, now there's nothing wrong with a therapist having countertransference. I want to be clear about that. He, there's a, it sounds to me like he had an attraction to you as well. I don't know, but you know, it sounds like he did. Um, there's nothing wrong with feelings, just like it, just with, just like with clients. There's nothing wrong with a client falling in love with their therapist. And there's nothing wrong with a, with a therapist having a romantic interest in a client. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a therapist having a crush on a client. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, but it's what you do with that. Do you, do you allow that to enter the room or do you work that out on your own? Do you allow that to ruin a therapeutic relationship and harm a client in the process or do you get your shit in order? You know, I've had hundreds of deep, long-lasting relationships with therapists where we have, you know, used humor with each other. Um, we've, you know... Uh, been friendly, I, I suppose, in session, but I've never engaged in flirtatious behavior with a client or talked about flying to the Bahamas to avoid my ethical, ethical responsibilities or, you know, you know, if I, if I had a client that I had a crush on or something, which, you know, as I've talked about in other episodes, for whatever reason, I'm on one end of the curve where that just doesn't happen to me. I just don't. Um, there's nothing wrong with it happening to other people, but it just doesn't happen to me. But anyway, if I did and I threw them a piece of gum, which would be weird, uh, but anyway, if I threw them a piece of gum and it landed in their cleavage, I wouldn't draw attention to it. I'd just be like, oh. And if she brought attention to it, I'd be, I would just be stone-faced. I'd be like, we don't have that kind of relationship where we can refer to your cleavage. That's not, that's not what we do here in therapy. Now, people will say, that's inappropriate. But I don't use that word because it's it's not a matter of appropriateness, which involves some sort of cultural judgment. What it does involve is helpfulness. It's not helpful for me to engage in that kind of talk with a client because, as we see here, it doesn't help things. So you know, there there's there's nothing wrong with uh, with having feelings, but you like I said, you keep it in your figurative pants. Um. You know, I, I know for my life where to direct my romantic needs, and it's not toward my clients. Clients come to me for help, they, and they deserve my help, and they deserve me not doing stuff like this. He should have terminated better. He, he could have he slowed down and had a series of meetings with you and apologized for his behavior, and he could have helped you transition to another therapist. And he could have apologized deeply and said, I am sorry. I, you know, I actually need to take a break from therapy for a while because I don't think I'm, I think I'm kind of losing, you know, my ability to be an effective therapist and I'm really, this is not your fault and I'm just really sorry. Um, his supervisor could have been in the room with him during this. Um, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of options that they could have done at this clinic that they did not do. So I am terribly sorry that this happened to you. Um, and and I told you in over email about this, and I'll tell you over the air right now. If, if you wanted to, you could absolutely, absolutely submit a formal uh, report, a formal complaint to the licensing board of whatever jurisdiction you're in, because I'm guessing they would be interested in this story of yours. Okay, let's go on to another email. Okay, this email is from patron Haley. Howie looks like Howie. Hale, 
patron Hallie, I think, says, Hi, Kirk. I have an issue with getting support from my family. I've always had family issues. My family makes me feel extremely terrible about my anxiety issues, and they tell me it's all my fault. They say that I'm victimizing myself. This causes me to doubt the people in my life, and I have trouble trusting others. Am I that person that everything happens to me? If that is me, how do I break the cycle of victimizing myself? If I'm not that person, how do I tell my family in the nicest way possible to fuck off? <laughs> they have they have been a big contribution. They have been a big contribution to my anxiety to my anxiety because I feel like I'm always being judged by them. Letting go of someone who does you no good is easy, but not as much when it's your family. Yeah, interesting email here. Good questions. Tough situation. Yeah, we all have a compulsion to connect with our family, even with it, even when it hurts us. It's we we have a deep seated need to get acceptance and love from our family. It's it's a well known phenomenon in family of origin theory that even when we could be fifty years old and um, if we never got the love and attention that we deserved as children, when we approach the issue of our parents, it'll hurt. And we'll have, we'll regress, we'll um, feel the pain, we will we'll be very ambivalent about it because we'll want to connect with them, but it will also be very scared of that and not trusting of them. And so that can become really an ongoing thing. And simply saying, well, I'm not going to worry about it, I'm going to move on in life is just not realistic given our needs regarding that kind of thing. Um, so the, the short answer that I'll tell you, patron Haley, is, Haley, is that the best way you can change all of this is to um, go to therapy. This is something that is excellent for therapy. Uh, you can go to individual therapy or maybe even family therapy with, with your family. Um, you know, your therapist would be able to help you with that. Some, sometimes it, 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 with therapy and maybe in your own work, it helps to understand why they would be this way. You know, what is it that they're afraid of? Why, why are they blaming you? for your anxiety. I mean, you have anxiety. It's your anxiety. Why would someone choose to have anxiety, you know? So why would they do this to you? Why would they put you down this way? Why would they um, say that you're victimizing yourself? Um, what are they afraid of? Are they are they ashamed of what they've done? H- have they not been given enough love and compassion from their parents growing up, which is probably likely? And really, just incidentally, I don't understand this notion of victimizing oneself or, you know, she always plays the victim. I I really don't – I've never seen a situation where I have thought that. The only time I've ever thought that actually is when someone is legitimately histrionic. And and even then I wouldn't say – I wouldn't judge them. I wouldn't say like, oh, my God, she's always playing the victim. Um, I wouldn't say that. I'd just be like, well, you know, that's how she knows how to communicate. That's how she knows how to – relate to other people because that was the only way her family would relate to her when she was growing up. So I really don't understand this. I hear it all the time. Like, ah, she's playing the victim. And I'm just like, um, it just seems like this really simplistic judgmental way of looking at other people. So I don't get it. Um, uh, sometimes you, um, you don't have to let go in order to heal. I want to point out. So, you know, you're you're like you're kind of troubled by your family of origin, 
and you like your life now. You, I didn't read all of your email, but you said that you have a boyfriend now, and you know you like your friends and stuff. So you're like, ah, I want to, I want to get rid of my family of origin. Um, but sometimes you don't have to do that. I mean, there's various different ways that you can heal and differentiate that don't necessarily involve um, separating from them. In fact, it's actually a fallacy that if you somehow quote unquote let go, that it you, you'll be better off. But what we call that in family of origin theory is that you're basically just cutting yourself off from them and the fusion and the undifferentiation continues because they're in your head is the thing. So, And I've worked with people on this. It's, it's, a, it's a process. It can take time and there's a lot of exploration and uncertainty and you know, different behaviors of you – know, like if you were my client, I'm, I might uh, explore with you possibilities of different contacts you would have with your family of origin. And, um, and, you know, in my work with clients around this, there can be like real, really quick transformation for people because they have me to talk to every week about it. And over time, the clients feel better. And, um, even though they still have contact with their family, so it's not, you know, if being cut off from your family of origin is the answer, then great. But that's not, that's not something I would assume, you know, what I see people do at the end of a process of family of origin therapy is that, it, they don't take things as seriously from their family anymore. They heal from the wounds that their family, uh, you know, did to them. the The clients are more aware of the kinds of weird triangulations that happen, and they're they're just more objective. It's like, oh, you know, here my, you know, here my mom goes doing that thing again, which she always does, and and that triggers me to do that. But I'm not going to do that this time. I'm gonna I'm gonna approach it this other way. That involves me drawing a boundary, but being loving at the same time. Um, and clients through family of origin therapy, they they understand more about why their why their um, parents are like that. You know, I, I do this with students in a, in a class called Family of Origin Systems, in which the students actually basically do a, an academic version of family of origin ther- th- uh, therapy on themselves, and through this exploration. Students will begin to understand their parents, you know, uh, they'll they'll or further their understanding, you know, because we we tend to have simplistic ideas of our parents, particularly when we're younger, and when we um, uh, explore things and actually look into our parents' upbringing and the parenting that they went through and all this kind of stuff, we're like, oh, I get why my parents are like that, and, you know, that makes sense, and that that helps that helps to. Um, tolerate them and to accept them and to not take things personally because it didn't have to do with you. It, you know, they were just making mistakes based on their own upbringing and that kind of stuff. So, so I encourage you to find a family of origin therapist in your area and engage in that because it, it can be a really wonderful thing. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you all deserve it. You really, really, really do. 